Our text this morning is the New Testament lesson from Philippians 2. And this text has traditionally been a companion reading to the well-known gospel text about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly life. Now, the main point of the standard Palm Sunday gospel lesson is quite clear. And I'm sure many of you have heard it many times. It's that Jesus comes as a lowly king. He comes on a donkey, not on a war horse. He comes to suffer and to die, and not as many of his contemporaries wanted to conquer, to militarily overthrow the Romans. So, a triumphal entry it is, but it's one of a deeply ironic, kind of upside-down quality. All of this, I trust, is fairly familiar. What this text from Philippians does is it drives home the point of the gospel lesson to us in practical ways, concrete ways, which are to shape the life of the church. In the context here, Paul's been pleading with the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. A Christ-centered life of united striving for the gospel. And so here Paul seeks to get us to see how indispensable, indispensable unity is and how costly it is to secure unity, to maintain unity in the church. And so we'll look at the passage under three headings. They're there in your bulletin. The plea, the pattern, and the perseverance. So first there's a plea. If there's at verse 1, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship with the Spirit. These are gifts from the triune God to the church. These things exist in some measure in any Christian community. And here, they're an incentive to progress. Paul seeks to see them extended, deepened. If there's encouragement, let's see it deepened. If there's comfort, let's see it deepened. If there's communion in the Spirit, let's see it enlarged. He continues, he says, if there's any tenderness, or in some Bibles, affection, and compassion, or sympathy, affection here speaks of inward warmth. It's the root, if you will, from which comes sympathy, suffering with the other. And so, at the outset, it's important to see that for the apostle, the kind of unity he's after is not only the confession of the same faith, it's not simply a kind of uniform worship. It's not unity which is governmental unity, We're all in the same church or the same denomination. It's much more difficult than that. 
It's much more costly than that. It's unity which involves your inner emotional life. It's it's unity which the apostle says reaches down to your affections, your sympathies. And that means it's a unity which depends critically on our capacity to enter into the life of other people. To displace ourselves and to be fully present with the other person. And to see the world from inside of their plight. This is very difficult. To make room for them. Paul says this is the taproot of unity in the church. And so unity then, to put it another way, is visceral. It comes from your gut. So he says, if, and surely these things do exist among you, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. You know, it's interesting how important this is for Paul. He is chained when he writes this letter. He's in a Roman prison. And the threat of execution hangs over his head. And he has earlier written, I don't know whether they're going to execute me or not. But what he says is, my joy can be made full if you can stand together in unity of affection and love. And so he says to have the same mind or one mind or to be like-minded. Which here literally means to think the same thing. Of course, Paul doesn't mean that everyone thinks exactly the same way. He doesn't mean that. And he doesn't mean that we all have the same set of convictions. He doesn't mean that. Although surely a basic unity in the gospel is assumed here. His point is, is that we are to have the same frame of mind. The same mindset. Which goes back to these interior affections. This comes out in verse 2 in these other phrases. They're to have the same love. The same love of God. The same impartial love of all the brethren. Right? There shouldn't be cliques where these people are loved and these people are loved less and these people are not loved at all. Sure, you're going to have affinities and friendships and There'll be, there'll be people you like better than other people, but everyone should get the same love. He says there to be one in spirit and purpose. Literally here he means to be one soul. So he says this to us as a church. He says we're to have the same mindset, the same frame of mind, the same sort of setting with respect to our affections, literally to have the same soul. Churches are about what they confess, to be sure, what they profess, what they do, but they also have what you might call an ethos. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's he's getting at 
the instincts that you have that are deep down in your personality and he's trying to form them and shape them. Because people, I will say this, visitors will pick up the ethos of the church way before they pick up the doctrine of the church. They will sense this sort of thing long before they realize, oh, Presbyterian polity is a system of graded courts. And so the apostle tells the Philippian church to have the same soul. You know what that means? That means when you meet one person from the church, and then you meet another person from the church, they should basically be giving off the same set of affections and sympathies and vision and direction about the church. This is very difficult to attain. Notice, in verse 3, he sees how this unity is to be achieved. Or he points us anyway. How do we achieve it? How do we maintain it? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So, to put this simply, selfishness and vanity destroy this kind of unity. The things we are by nature just destroy this kind of unity. You know, in the circles that we're in, we tend to think wrongly, by the way, that all division is caused by doctrinal error. But if you actually look at real church divisions, rivalry and faction, selfishness and conceit, they always loom large. You know, it's not because two guys couldn't agree on what some verse in Romans chapter 9 meant. And this division, which is basic, by the way, it marks our existence as Christians, this division. For the church is divided. And that should always be a cause of mourning to us. This division is almost always a sign of tragic moral failure. Although the people who are involved in the division... They never narrate the story that way. For them, it's, I was a hero of truth and orthodoxy, and these other people over here were stubborn and rebellious, so we had to split. Good guys, bad guys, white hats, black hats. So, Paul says we're to do nothing from selfishness, and that means we need a correct estimation, he says, of ourselves. And that correct estimation, the Apostle says, that appropriate evaluation of who we are, is humility. The the 5th century church father, John Chrysostom, said there is nothing so foreign to a Christian as arrogance. Nothing so foreign. And humility, and we've said this before, humility is simply sanity. That's all it is. It's not feigned. You don't have to fit. It's not groveling. It's not sanctimonious. It's not a pathetic lack of dignity. It's a mark of moral clarity and integrity. It's simply a sober awareness and acknowledgement of who God is, who we are, and what our weaknesses are. You know, Blaise Pascal said, What amazes me the most is to see that everyone is not amazed at his weakness. 
It's astonishing that there are people that are not amazed at their weaknesses. Some of us are barely aware of them. Pascal says it's amazing to see that everyone is not amazed at their weakness. And so humility is a true assessment of ourselves. And this helps us assess others rightly. To see them clearly. And to consider, the apostle says, to consider the other person better than ourselves. That's quite radical. Of course, Paul believes we're all equally significant. But it turns out that in actual situations, in encounters with other people, we have to decide, don't we? Whose concerns, whose interests are going to be given priority. Every conversation, every interaction, every relationship is an opportunity for you and I to stand outside ourselves. Every last one of them. To be first, we're, we're always deciding, am I going to be first here or second? First or second? Am I going to listen or am I going to talk? Am I going to listen or am I going to talk? Being second, listening, that's a, that's a form of self-crucifixion. You have to be ecstatic, out of yourself. It's an ecstatic thing to listen. It's a displacement of the self. It's a giving way. There's an old rhyme, sort of a nursery rhyme, that goes like this. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. We like the first fiddle. We like the first fiddle, whether it's in an interaction around the coffee pot or just a handshake or more big things. We like the first thing. We like the higher ground. We like to direct and control. Put your concerns, Paul says, last. Doesn't mean we don't have legitimate concerns. You can see that in verse 4. We have to look after our legitimate concerns. But where there's a conflict, he says, if there's going to be unity in the church, you have to create a kind of instinct, a kind of affection, which lets the other person win. Now remember what he's after. He's saying you can't have in any congregation deep, lasting unity without this kind of other-oriented humility. And unity in the church is the chief indicator of its prosperous condition. This is Paul's passionate plea. While he is chained, while execution hangs over his head, he says to us, be this kind of people. Second point, of course, is the pattern. Verse 5, your attitude, the mindset Paul's just spoken of, should be the same as Christ Jesus. This is why this text is a companion text to the gospel lesson. What is on display on Palm Sunday in the entrance of our Lord into Jerusalem is just this attitude, this mindset. Jesus is now entering the last phase of his self-emptying. And when he does it, he rejects the way of the zealots. He's not going to call for a movement to overthrow the Romans by force. And yet he's no Roman collaborator. 
We've been looking at this in the Lenten services on Tuesday nights. In the end, Jesus is more subversive. More subversive than all the zealots and all the agitators combined. Because he inaugurates this new form, this new shape of kingship. What N.T. Wright called a revolutionary way of being revolutionary. That's Jesus' whole earthly ministry in one sentence. It is a revolutionary way of being revolutionary. And Paul traces this way of Jesus all the way back into his eternal existence. In verse 6 he says, This is the one who, being in very nature God, fully God, equal with God, and though he was in the nature of God, He doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched. Something to be, he didn't use his deity as something to exploit or for selfish ends. But he says in verse 7, he made himself nothing. The eternal Christ God of God, light of God, light, true God of true God, made himself nothing. The text literally means he emptied himself. And there's a long, convoluted debate about what this could possibly mean. But it's pretty clear what it means to Paul. And we'll return to that in a minute, but we can say, safely say a few things about this emptying. It does not mean that Jesus emptied himself out of his divinity. That he emptied himself of some divine attributes. It doesn't mean that. Though it is true that in some sense Jesus' deity is veiled. Not absent, but veiled in the incarnation. But notice what the text is about is not what Christ emptied himself out of. Of, but rather what he emptied himself into. The text says he took, he takes, he adds, he empties by addition. He takes the form of a servant, a slave. So he doesn't exchange the mode of being God for the mode of being man. Rather, what he does, and this is the wonder of the incarnation. He manifests his godness, his deity, as a slave. Now, he is not, Jesus is not God in a man. He is God as a man. And that difference is everything. And it's, it's a wonder. This is the kind of God you serve. The lowly God who takes the form of a slave. This is a kind of fullness which is actually manifested by making itself nothing. This is why when you make yourself nothing with another person, it's a sign of dignity and strength and fullness and vigor and life. The God whose very godness can be expressed in stooping to become a slave. Low within a manger lies 
He who built the starry skies. And this passage functions quite simply for Paul. This emptying of Jesus is the pattern for Christian living. It's the indispensable pattern, the prerequisite for lasting, deep unity in the church. For us, it means simply this. The self that you've been given, the self that you are, is something to be poured out. So verse 8 says, he was found in appearance as a man. You know, to an observer, he would be found appearing as any other man, just a carpenter from Nazareth, son of Mary. And so he, he crosses, he traverses the distance between God and sinners. And this, by the way, is something we have no categories to capture We can't grasp it. Even using the word distance shows the poverty of our concepts. Because we can only measure distance as creatures. If a man were to become, say, a dog. Or if a man were to become, say, an insect. It would not even begin In fact, it would fall infinitely short of describing this emptying. The distance here, if we have to use the word distance, we're trapped in our concepts. The distance here is qualitative. It's not quantitative. You have this all-glorious God, transcendent over time and space, incomparable, full of delight in his own community of being, In need of nothing, for whom the sprawling cosmos is nothing. Isaiah says he lifts the nations up in his fingers like grains of sand. This one becomes man. He whom the worlds could not unwrap, yonder lies in Mary's lap. And having made this descent, this unspeakable and unable to even be grasped or captured descent, Paul says he further humbles or he empties himself. Right, He becomes man, but then he empties himself further in this voluntary subjection. Kierkegaard says, and he's quite eloquent about this, he says Christ humbled himself. Not he was humbled, This, Kierkegaard says, is infinitely sublime, for there was none in heaven or on earth or in the abyss that could humble him. Having become man, he humbled himself. You know, the servant, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, and it's easy to forget this. He is the first consenting sacrifice In the Bible, animals do not come voluntarily for slaughter. This is the servant who comes voluntarily for slaughter. That's what Kierkegaard is getting at. He humbled himself. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He says, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen there. He humbles himself by becoming, Paul says, obedient to the point of death. 
And even though it has lost all shock value for us, Paul adds this for shocking effect. He adds the word even. Even death on a cross. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful little book I think I've recommended here before. It's like 75 pages by Martin Hengel, the German theologian, just simply entitled Crucifixion. If you want to get a sense of what this scandal involves. But we know that crucifixion was probably invented by the Persians around 300 B.C. But the Roman state... They made widespread use of it as an instrument of uh, state torture. And it is possibly the most agonizing form of death ever invented. One, One scholar says that it is a punishment, crucifixion is, in which the caprice and the sadism of the executioners are giving full reign. Josephus, the the first century Jewish historian, said crucifixion is the most wretched of all deaths. The victim is stripped naked and then flogged from the shoulders down to the upper legs by a leather whip with metal balls and pieces of sheep bone. And then huge chunks of flesh And muscle are torn, leaving the skin in long ribbons. And a great volume of blood is lost, and the victim goes into shock within minutes. And then the victim is paraded through the streets, carrying the crossbeam, to which his already mutilated body is going to be nailed with seven to nine inch spikes at the place of execution. Hengel describes this in great detail, by the way, in his book. And then the vertical pole is is set in place and the victim is hoisted onto it. And the feet would be nailed and the hands would be nailed. And from there, it's just time and the weight of the victim's body, which does the rest of the brutal work. Eventually, the lungs collapse. The heart fails and there's dehydration. The victim eventually suffocates. And in the Roman Empire, this even unto death was reserved for the vilest of criminals, for slaves, for insurrectionists. It was almost never used on a Roman citizen. Polite Roman society couldn't even speak of it. They would avoid to speak of it. Cicero, roughly a contemporary of Jesus, said that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, from his eyes, and from his ears. And we have lost all of this by our over-casual familiarity with the gruesome brutality that lies at the center of the Christian faith. I've said before that we'd be much better off if instead of wearing crosses around our necks, we wore electric chairs, little tiny electric chairs. If we took the crosses down from our churches and hung frescoes of the mass graves, 
of the innocent victims of genocide, we'd have something closer to the first century horror that Paul is trying to express in the little words, even death on a cross. It's supposed to provoke revulsion. This is the pattern. Remember the context here. This is what Paul sets forth to the church for the way we are to live so that there might be an ethos of genuine unity and affection and love in the community. And the result of this is that Christ is highly exalted and he has a name bestowed upon him above every name and he gets universal confession and submission. Even unbelievers, everything in heaven, earth and under the earth, no one will fail to acknowledge the lordship of this crucified and now exalted one. You know, in the, in the uh, sixth century, the pagan emperor, Roman Emperor Julian, known as Julian the Apostate, when he was dying, he was alleged to say, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean expressing his recognition that with his death, Christianity would become the empire's religion. The whole host who have lived will make this confession, either in triumph or joy or in despair, as Julian made it. Finally, perseverance. Verse 12, you get this command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, You'll notice there is no let go and let God theology here. Paul thinks this is exacting. He thinks it's demanding. He thinks it's something we work out. The Christian life is hard. Very, 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 very hard. It is humanly impossible to live. And so he says, work it out. With fear and trembling. And fear and trembling are in order because the path is always the same as it was for Jesus. Palm Sunday always precedes Easter, even in your life. But notice, when Paul says to us, work your salvation out with fear and trembling, in this context, he's talking about Be the kinds of people who can produce the unity that I'm pleading with you to attain. Palm Sunday is not just for Jesus. Palm Sunday is not a spectator sport. It's the pattern. It's the way of the church. It's a call for us to imitate Jesus. And thus Paul says... Church unity is not something given that, you know, if you're kind of bad, you can destroy. It's an attainment. It comes through the most agonizing of struggles. It comes through the cross. And so this means that we, the church, we are always to be the Palm Sunday church. Always following this lowly one, this self-emptying one in his revolutionary way of being revolutionary. Our very salvation is bound up with the unity that Paul has pled for. 
It's a folly to think that we can tolerate broken relationships and alienation and estrangement and disunity in the congregation without threatening our own salvation. We all work out our salvation together jointly. But Paul makes it clear here in verse 13 that God is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. It's often missed, but what is God's good pleasure in the midst of this context? It's the unity of the church. God enables us to will and to effectively work. But again, because everything is from God does not mean nothing is from man. Everything being from God means everything is required of you and me. That's the logic of the gospel. It transcends cutting up the pie and saying, well, 90% is from God and 10% is from us. Or 50% is from God. No, 100% is from God. That means 100% is required of you to respond. It's a strange calculus. And so we're called to follow this Palm Sunday road. The way of him who, though he was rich, became poor. That you through his poverty might be made rich. You know, there's something about this Palm Sunday road. It always leads to that violence in Jerusalem. But this is the road, the only road to unity. And the road to unity is the road to glory. Amen.